0: Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS, routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast, the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Katherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health.
1: I'm thrilled today. This is the second episode of the common health our new podcast series which is part of the csis bipartisan alliance for global health security i'm thrilled today to be with admiral raquel bono welcome raquel thank you raquel is a member of the bipartisan alliance she was a member of the pre prior commission on strengthening america's health security very grateful to you let me say a few words about you and then we can jump into the conversation Uh, raquel is a trauma and critical care surgeon. 36-year career in the U.S. military, a three-star admiral. She served as a surgeon general in what is now the Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii, where we met each other, I think, the first time there when you were in that post. She went on to become the second head of the Defense Health Agency based here in Washington, D.C., in which the services, this grand experiment at unifying and integrating across the services in a way that's very challenging, very overdue, very important. And you served in that role. Today, Raquel is the chief health officer in Viking Cruises, where she started in that role in December of 2020. We'll come back to that period. The first period I'd like to talk to you about Raquel, is this very unusual experience you had, where you had just retired with this amazing and very distinguished career in the U.S. military, and you get tapped at the very beginning of the pandemic in early 2020. You get tapped by Governor Jay Inslee in Washington State to come and assist. Tell us, first of all, how did that happen? You're not from Washington State. You grew up and you still live in San Antonio. Your career has
2: taken you all over the globe. How did that happen? It's a fair question, and I wasn't really paying attention too much to Washington State itself except for the fact that in my job as the indo surgeon, we had done quite a few war games, and so I had this heightened awareness of what was going on with what was in what we were calling the novel coronavirus, and so I was at turns, I was only a few months past my retirement, and I was at turns thinking, oh, I probably took off the uniform too early because we did these war games. I know what to do. And then I thought, no, this is going to get really big. This is going to be a big lift. I'm I'm glad I'm no longer in uniform. And so as I was watching the development of this, what became shortly after that, uh, a pandemic, I received a call from a friend of a friend. The first friend was somebody in Washington State who reached out to a friend here in in the D.C. area. And the question was, was there anybody that they knew that had retired from the military so recently. So they called me and they said, can you recommend some people that have recently retired and might be able to help in the state of Washington? And I said, well, yeah, sure. I know a few people. And, and I started naming some names and they said, well, no, let's Let's rephrase Let's that more question. Specific. That's right. Are you willing to help? I said, "Well, um, what kind of help do you need? What is it?" I mean, I had just heard about the nursing home patients that had succumbed to this, and it was clear this was a fast moving. These were
1: one of the first shock. Yes, the first,
2: the first incident. The first, yes, incidents. yes, where it was, it was first recognized, and then a series of nursing home residents had succumbed to this, yes. and. We were starting to hear news of other similar situations in, in Washington State as well as in New, New York now. So we were getting on both sides of the country. So they were looking for somebody that had some deep healthcare knowledge. And, and given my work in the military and running several hospitals and my final job as the Defense Health Agency director, knowing large healthcare systems was something that they wanted some, some expertise in. How many
1: Americans served under the Defense Health Agency?
2: Oh, my goodness like tens and hundreds of thousands, you know, so very large healthcare system with lots of differing types of capabilities. They also needed somebody who they said uh, knew how to manage a crisis, somebody with crisis management skills. And I thought, oh yeah, sure, check. (laughs) I I can do that. And then they also said they wanted somebody from the military because they needed leadership and they needed somebody who would be giving orders, who could give orders. And I said, well, the first two criteria I I feel that that resonates with me. The leadership. I, I can do that for you, but the part about the orders—we'll have to have a, a separate conversation did about that. What do you mean by that? Well, I always felt that as a senior officer or as any kind of officer, it was a failure of my leadership if I had to resort to giving orders to get something done. I had learned through tremendous examples and through experience in the military that the most effective leadership was being able to provide the right type of resources, the right kind of circumstances, and the information for people. And it also entailed understanding what kind of talent you had on hand and being able to unleash that. So I found that more effective and sustainable leadership, or actually more effective leadership with more sustainable results, came about if I set the conditions for that for other people. And if I ever had to give an order, that was usually a failure of my leadership. Unless I was in the OR, in which, I you know, but even then, I would say please and thank you when I asked for the instruments, so I tried to soften it.
1: So, you, you dropped everything, you were living in Alexandria, you got this call, you agreed to do it, got on an airplane, flew out to Seattle, and started working. So, tell us, this is a chaotic, fear-suffused situation, bad things are happening at a very fast pace. So, what were you? How were you deployed in that in that setting? How did they make use of your skills
2: at that time? If you can recall, at that time um, we were having to re- preserve all of our PPE, so that meant that all elective cases were put on hold, and only people that were on the front line who needed the PPE in order to take care of people that were coming down with COVID were allocated the PPE. The other piece that was happening was that we were having a problem testing people, and so we were waiting for people to get sick before we test them, which in retrospect was not. I mean, even in retrospect, that wasn't the right way to do it. But the other piece that was starting to happen, and this was evident in Washington State, is that there were certain hospitals that were starting to go uh, get overloaded, Mm -hmm. and they were going on divert, or they were sending people out, or they were having to start rationing or metering how people would come into their facilities. And that was actually the more pressing thing, was when I got to Washington State, was seeing all the different healthcare systems and hospitals that were starting to really strain under the pressure of of so many people getting sick. In order to address that, what I realized is that we couldn't necessarily look at one hospital over another. We had to look at the entirety of the state of Washington as an enterprise. As you know, looking at it, a whole of state approach mm-hmm. to supporting people that were being diagnosed with, with COVID and were needing hospitalization or additional support therapies. So when I got there to Washington and it was, you know, really, I got the call on, the, on a Saturday. I asked the governor, when did he want me? He said, last week would have been great. <laughs> so on Sunday, I'm, I'm on a plane and Monday morning, I'm, I'm in his office. And that's where I get a chance to be. That's when I first met the Department of Health of Washington Mm -hmm. State, had an opportunity to see what they were doing, started working with their emergency operations center, and then did a very fast and extensive review of all the different types of resources that Washington State was bringing to this fight and how could we best synchronize it. So it was a very whirlwind start, but, you know, taking care of what was at hand was, you know, right there. It was evident. But I was able to, to hear and see what the governor himself and his leadership was trying to do. And that was, you know, really help protect the frontline workers in Washington state. And then the other piece was in optimizing all of the resources, no matter what elements of support they could bring to covid trying to mobilize that and align that and synchronize it across the state. And the third, first principle, you know, I, we'd set up these, these first principles, was to save as many Washingtonians as possible. So that was kind of how we framed our support. And it was a helpful construct to use as we, we looked at what we were know, dealing with. Uh,
1: back in 2020, we, uh, you and I talked when, when this period was going on, and we interviewed For our podcast, the director of health for the state of Washington was very impressive. Yes. So, as you look back on this period in time, you stayed for six and a half months, Mm -hmm. even though you thought you were going out there for six weeks. (laughs) But the governor quickly discovered you're essential. You're not going anywhere. Stay a little longer, which you kindly did. So, this was a profound experience. And so, you were there to be a macro province in a way, right? What you said about the private sector has to be part of this, other community and civic organizations, state government. Then there's the interface with the feds. And my guess is they were curious to know what light you could shed on that in that period. I remember the Governor Inslee being very vocal. He used the media and Jenny Durkin, the, the then mayor of Seattle, was also a very great communicator. These folks were Turning on the communications big time and being both critical of the federal government in the case of the governor, but also always being acknowledging the good things that were being done and trying to keep things as depoliticized as possible. Wasn't always possible. So when you look back and and you think, okay, what were the big revelations that you could harvest from this? Like what were the the big lessons that came out of the Washington state experience where you had a certain novelty in the approach? It was deliberately nonpartisan. You had former Governor Christine Gregoire convening CEOs. She's a pretty pragmatic, nonpartisan person. We actually did events with her in Washington State when she was in governor. So, what worked and what didn't work, do you think, in this period? And what were the big lessons?
2: You know, I've I've thought it through so many times, and and every time I get a chance to review it, there's also there's always another nugget that comes to light. Yeah. I think that the immediately though, what was clear is you had very engaged leadership, as you mentioned. I, you know, I was working very closely with Governor Inslee and his Department of Health, the Secretary of Health, and I mean the piece then too that that we emulated at the government level, at that level was that we worked across all of his departments. So I was working with the Department of Health and Human Services. I was working with the Bureau of Prisons for the state and the education system, the tribal system, because this was, you know, so even being able to do that kind of across his his government offices was so important. And having that engaged leadership, Mayor Durkin and even Governor Gregoire, and the involvement of the CEOs from the big businesses that are, are based in, in Washington, there was some real dedicated and committed leaders to wanting to do the best for all Washingtonians. And when you had that, and you knew that commitment was there, then part of the language followed in terms of how do we want to address this? What's the best way we can do it? What can we all bring to bear to make sure that as many Washingtonians as possible are kept safe? And those were usually how the conversation started. And even when we needed to look at how do we restart elective surgery, bringing all stakeholders to the table and, and getting them to help draft the language so that we could do this in a codified way that was sanctioned by the government, though, you know, this uh, Washington state government, was something where we brought people into the conversation that. Wasn't, they were unexpected. I mean, yes. we, we had the professional medical societies. We had the the different types of associations that represented the different specialists. But I wanted to make sure that we, we also brought in the unions and, you know, the tribal nations because they had to be a part of this. They had to know how it would best serve everybody. And so um, I think that engaged leadership and really cutting across all the different departments and sectors and divisions was was critical and then i think the other thing that I, I i feel really strongly was a big part of the of our progress was being able to find the common goals in language that everyone could easily recognize it resonated and they could they could commit to it and that always takes a little bit more work
1: can you give us an example because i think this is a really important point that you're making that the way in which language was selected carefully in communicating to a public that was frightened and uncertain about where this was going, and be honest with people about what we know and don't know. And we were coming in in the midst of acute shortages. Mm-hmm. Testing was short, PPE was short. We went into lockdown really rapidly. It was hugely disruptive of everyone's lives. Businesses were thrown into some of the emergency financing measures hadn't yet been come into full force, it was a really extraordinary period where communications became so absolutely essential.
2: It was. And, and we had to spend, I had a team that I, I worked with, and they were just incredible. They had such great insight into, you know, the types of things people would pay attention to and what was really near and yeah. dear to them. What we found was if we looked uh, at the whole state of Washington as kind of its own enterprise, and everybody had a a role or a contribution that they could make or a capability they could offer to the effort. That was one thing, was framing it, that context of an entirety of state approach. The other piece was looking at this entire uh, pandemic as an upstream and downstream and being able to understand that here were some upstream things that we could do that would prevent much more consequential Mm -hmm. downstream things. So, for example, with PPE, Mm -hmm. you know, who had the best shot at getting PPE and where do we actually need to have the PPE? And what we found was that there were a couple of private hospitals in the state of Washington that still had a fairly robust PPE supply chain. And we found that some of the county uh, public health and, and county EMS and some of the smaller hospitals were having a difficult time including the state of Washington the the yeah. health department so we we set up a PPE consortium and we just tapped the people who were e- who still had you know access to the supply chain and they ended up ordering for all of us yes and then distributing that but yes. then it was distributing it to the upstream folks that needed it the most, the EMS, the first responders, the ones that were in the ambulances, getting them into congregate settings where, you know, that's where we notice there's great risk. And what that allowed us to do then is if we went upstream, it would prevent a lot of the downstream Mm -hmm. challenges that we were starting to experience. So it's that leadership, you know, that enterprise approach, you know, the whole of state, and then seeing the whole thing as a system and a process of upstream and downstream. Mm -hmm. And when we took that approach, we spent time then also understanding how people could see themselves in each of these constructs. Yes. So if we were talking about leadership, you know, well, what kind of leader: state leader, health leader, big business leader, county leader, you know, what state of Washington has 39 counties. They're fiercely independent. It's a home rule state, which I'm not quite sure yet <laughs> what that actually means, but yes. very independent. Very much protective of their autonomy, mm-hmm. yet what we were able to find across all of the counties is there was always something that they had a vested interest in and that they could also support in, in, in making sure that they could help take care of something.
1: A couple of questions on this. On the military side, of course, the state of Washington has a huge naval presence and has for a very long time. And early in the response, there was a turn it, when, when it became clear that there was a high risk that the medical system was going to reach a breaking point, that you're going to have to hit this triage that people dreaded not being able to, to take care of everyone in need, being forced into these terrible choices. Oftentimes, they turned to the military in various forms, National Guard units, specialized medical services out of the military. Logistics planning and the like was that true in Washington State? And were you at the interface there?
2: I was not the interface. The Emergency Operations Center and the National yeah. Guard were really the interface. Yeah. But I had I had a deep awareness of what they were doing, and they were always at the ready. However, you know, it was easy again to to get real tunnel vision about the state of Washington and you know, I had to keep an eye on the fact that what was going on in California and New Mexico and, you know, Texas and Florida was, you know, what we were experiencing in in Washington. And, you know, that was another concern is how much would reach to all of the states that were starting to be impacted by this. So what we had done in Washington state is we had actually looked at Again, the, the types of beds we needed. We worked very closely with Institute of um, was IMHE. The
1: Institute of Health Metrics and yes. Evaluation.
2: Yes. Chris Murray's evaluation. Yes. Sure. We worked very closely yes. with them because I really liked their projections. And so we took their numbers, and I felt they had you know great fidelity. And instead of looking at one hospital, what we did is we looked at all the hospitals across the state of Washington. So if the IMHE pro- projection was that we would need X number of ICU beds, we would add a 10 to 20% wiggle room in that. Yeah. And then we would count the number of ICU beds in the state of Washington. We found out that we were like about 50 short if we use those, yes. you know. And so we, f- we said, how can we close that gap? And we came up with ventilators um, and we came up with uh, ambulatory surgery centers that could be, you know, yeah. temporary holding for people that need ventilated care before we, we transferred them to the hospital. Yeah. We set up a system with Microsoft in setting up a, a Power BI uh, dashboard mm-hmm. so that we could have statewide visibility of the number of ICU beds, where the PPE were, you know, yeah. what acute care beds were available, so that at no time, and that was the agreement that we all had across all the health systems in the state of Washington, was that we were going to allocate our resources, and we were going to transfer patients to places to avoid going into critical crisis standards of care. And by doing that, we wouldn't necessarily, we wouldn't overload one hospital to where they'd have to go and divert or shut down, and it wouldn't be to the detriment of some of the smaller hospitals where they couldn't handle it. And we certainly felt that was a better solution, you know, for the, for the patients.
1: You know, the, one of the points that survey groups Kaiser Family Foundation, Pew Research Center. But one of the points that their survey work revealed was that up until March-April time frame, in the first quarter of the outbreak, there was quite a bit of national unity. There was quite a bit of opinion in support of the measures that were taken. You know, we went into this 30, then 45-day lock, national lockdown. But that after that, things began to divide, that we began to see a polarization and a division beginning to appear in opinion, oftentimes along partisan lines or along ideological lines or along urban versus rural. Lots of inequities begin to appear in access to to services and quality or inequities in the way that this pandemic was impacting communities or so much higher severe illness and death rates. In the Black community, Hispanic community, and the Native American community. Do you think... That, in the Washington State instance, the approach that was taken that you're describing did it dampen those tendencies to have greater division that we saw in polarization that we began to see unfold in the in the summer of 2020 It sort of it was a bit of a sharp turn. What did you see in Washington state? Did these measures that were taken by the governor and the mayors and the business sector and the health providers and the like, did those add up to a stronger, durable consensus within society in Washington State around the response?
2: I think that it put us a little ahead of the curve. I mean, we were, getting, we were starting to get traction on, on these efforts, and we were starting to see better outcomes, you know, but we couldn't quell completely you know, some of the, the rhetoric and the polarity that was starting to seep in. Um, but I think that the part that was gratifying is that the foundational work that we had done in terms of trying to see all of the health resources as an, you know, a whole of state, and we looked at things from upstream and downstream, yeah. that that was still common language we could use. And so even when things got heated, being able to remind people, okay, well, we, we still don't want this hospital to go into crisis of standards of care. So what do we need to look like to make sure that we don't do that and that we maintain some kind of capability so we can be sure that the least number of, yeah. of Washingtonians die?
1: And so did the public trust survive better in this case? I mean, we've seen trust decline significantly,
2: yeah.
1: even more severely along ideological or partisan lines but an overall rise of anti-science sentiment and a decline of trust and confidence.
2: I think that there was there were a lot of there were a lot of leaders in the state government there the Washington state government that they had a high degree of trust in the Department of Health and and the different departments there. But you know it was it was challenging. I, I will say that even as people were were starting to you know, fall into some of the rhetoric and everything, I think that it was clear that at least the elected leadership in the state of Washington, they really were about the Washingtonians. And that came out over and over again. And being able to align to that message really helped move a lot of our efforts along. So, you know, I think that You know, and I probably tend to see things with rose-colored glasses on this, and I was really in the thick of these conversations and these efforts. Um, I left about mid-June, end of June, and I felt really comfortable, I felt really good about some of the foundational work we had done. But I recognized, even after leaving there, how insulated I'd been from, from some of the the language and the conversations and the dialogue that was starting to come out that really had people on you know, different sides okay. of the fence.
1: I mean, ideologically, the state pre-pandemic, the state was quite divided between the East and West. Mm-hmm. And that's been longstanding, has its roots in history and ge- the geography the and,
2: mountains. and yeah. the
1: mountains. And, and, it, and it's very striking, you know, it's mm-hmm. really almost two states.
2: It is. And you know, what was really fascinating about that, though, is that I had the chance to travel across both sides of the state pretty equally. So yes, I could see, I could see the differences on the sides of the state, but having the conversation with the leaders in each of the different counties, depending on where they were, what I found so remarkable is they were also after the same thing.
1: You were able to get out and talk to the leadership of all 39 counties. just about. That's amazing. Do you keep a diary?
2: I have notes that I, yeah, because it was just amazing. I mean, I learned so much, and I it's a wonderful, wonderful state that they've got there. Tremendous natural resources. You know, I was reflecting that there was a point there when we were trying to lift some of the restrictions, and and one of the first places we did that was in, in the hiking and the outdoor activities, because we were beginning to appreciate that being outdoors and having that social distancing was going to be safe. So I thought, what better place but Washington State to be able to do that.
1: Now, you had a, you've had a, a very strong special interest in thinking about the role that the private sector plays in these situations like this and how to get the best return, how to engage the private sector to the best possible outcome. And that's true, I think, from listening to you in the health sector itself, but beyond the health sector. I mean, Washington State has some extraordinary, powerful and large corporate interests, right? Boeing, epic influence within the state over many, many decades. Amazon, more recent Amazons, Starbucks. What are your reflections looking back on what we learned about the private sector in this period?
2: If I had been able to concentrate a little bit more in helping uh, some of the private sector see what they could do, you know, I would have enjoyed having that opportunity. But Candidly, I had not yet learned a lot about private sector and some of the the pain points they have. Yeah. I mean, I can speak in you know very global terms and but I understood after a while and subsequently to leaving Washington state, that my hypothesis was my premise was that there had to be a way that we could have public health informed interventions or solutions that were put in play in private areas, private entities that would still maintain their profitability and their survivability. And that was the key thing for me was that because this this pandemic was not a single sector solution. It it had to be a multi-sector solution. And the only solution that we were applying was going into lockdown, which Didn't help anybody.
1: Talk a bit about lockdown and the impacts that had psychically and in terms of just cash flow, workforce, disruptions.
2: It was profound. And it continues to be. There are still uh, repercussions that we're experiencing today. But small businesses that would go into shutdown... You know, oftentimes they wouldn't have the capability of of coming back up and being open for customers, especially if they had a a customer facing element, a service. And, you know, we, we didn't give them the tools to do this safely or we didn't find the way to socialize some of the tools they could have used. And so some of that was also uh, working with some of the larger companies to encourage them to participate in in some of the testing that we had. Because, again, what we found out was that testing, because we were relying so heavily on PCR, which is a very intensive testing protocol, um, and it's also resource intensive, I think that if private industry had been able to participate in helping us find a solution there, we probably would have come to market faster with a testing schema that was affordable and quick and more readily available. And, you know, I think that the other piece, too, that I've, I've come to learn is that there are some private organizations, there are uh, businesses in the private sector who would gladly participate in either sharing their own data or participating in some of the interventions that we were looking at to see if it would work. And had some of their own philanthropic efforts that they would have liked to contribute.
1: You know, we just published back in mid-January, January 12th, this major study of CDC and what accounts for the drop of trust, what accounts for the decline in performance, popular perceptions, how to bring it back to a high-performing and well-trusted and respected institution because we need, we have to have this institution. And, of course, the state and local governments are their core clients that they serve. Any observations on that interface between CDC and the state of Washington in that period?
2: I was surprised to find out that CDC had been interfacing with the state of Washington because I felt like their voice had been so muted. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that their voice was muted so much now in retrospect. It was that there were so many different voices that were kind of clamoring that it was really hard to distill what was what was coming out as a recommendation and what was coming out as guidance and how we could actually implement some of the things that, that CDC was was asking the state, other states to do as well. And recollecting from that time, everyone was just trying to keep their head above water. So it was very hard to hear um, guidance that was coming out. And it was also very hard to to do some of our own due diligence to figure out okay, which is what is legitimate now. I'm
1: thinking also about there were tests developed in Washington State at the, at the university, and this was a period where CDC was trying to develop its own tests, and, and that turned out to be a huge stumble, really, a grave debacle that set back the response and set back public trust and confidence and contributed to the problem in a significant way. There seemed to be a lot of resentment among the folks that developed those tests, that they were not given the opportunity to move forward, that there were initiatives and capacities that could have been put to the test, could have been put to work in that period. Were you witness to that?
2: In a small way. uh, I think, though, that what you're talking about is is kind of a part of a larger paradigm, though, that we see in agencies and in in government entities. When looking for solutions, trying to create an organic one rather than being able to surveil the market and see what's already available out there and and I think that was part of what I wished we'd been able to do is let some of those entities that were developing those tests get a little bit more support yes. and sponsorship because I think we would have been we would have gotten some of these these tests and these uh, solutions a little quicker. Yeah.
1: Before we run out of time, I want to make sure that we hear a little bit about your time with Viking Cruises. You came in December of 20, this is before vaccines had been, or they were just about to be introduced. Mm -hmm. You're still in this role. You were there advising them and guiding them in the reopening. Mm -hmm. And this was an international reopening. It was a global, it's a global firm. It's a global reopening. It seems to me that Okay, there were lots of setbacks and delays and controversy around the terms of this, and there was, you know, I remember a governor in Florida getting into a big fracas with with CDC and others, and and the industry being unhappy. But today, the industry is functioning and seems to be back on its feet. We don't hear, you don't, you don't read stories in the news. Does that mean that after a Difficult period of trying to have an orderly, safe reopening actually has worked. Is that fair?
2: I think we've all learned some lessons, a lot of them the hard way. As we progressed in the cruise line industry and working with CDC, CDC became uh, a much more regular part. Uh, they invited us, they invited the cruise industry yes. into the conversations on a regular basis, which was extremely helpful. And that was something that hadn't occurred at Mm -hmm. that point. Mm -hmm. And so we had a cadence of meeting them just about every week because the the data were were changing. Looking back on that, what would have been really helpful is if there'd been a receptivity from CDC to actually look at some of the data that some of us cruise lines had Mm -hmm. already been collecting. For example, in Viking, we had we had our own PCR labs that we'd put on each one of our vessels. Now, we used saliva PCR, and we had done the research and had the data to show that while it didn't have the same sensitivity and specificity as the nasopharyngeal PCR, it was sensitive enough for us to pick up an early presence of the virus so that we could quickly curtail it, put the right people into isolation, and stop the transmission. And we had, because we were we wanted to take care of our crew, because our crew oftentimes came from areas where they were at higher risk yes. for catching COVID or coming down with COVID, we had tens of thousands of data points to show that we could start safely predicting. And while it might not have the same scientific rigor as a hospital or an academic-based study, we controlled for as many variables as we could, and it would have been helpful to share some of that to show how it might amplify our collective understanding yes. of what we could do to move safely through the pandemic. So I think we've all taken some of those lessons, and I think having that conversation with CDC is something that we know that going forward, we hope that we can we can do more with. And as we discussed in that, that report that came out in January, is that there are opportunities for the private sector to contribute to that that understanding, as well as not only with data, but also should have some voice in some of the solutions that are coming up from the science community.
1: We hadn't talked about this, and I'm going to ask you a question around the recent change in testing in the military, if you're comfortable answering that. If you're not, we'll just cut it out. But while I have you here, I feel like I should pose a question to you about a recent development, which is, Congress, in the National Defense Authorization Act, Congress mandated that the military uh, rescind the mandate for vaccinating servicemen and women. And Admiral Cullison and I have written about this and spoken. We've spoken to a lot of people, uh, professional career military, medical folks, leadership offline. We had a lot of conversations about what does this mean? How will this impact readiness? How will it impact deployment, interoperability, deployment, morale? And uh, I just wanted to ask you, what's your thought thinking on this? It strikes really at the heart of the world that you led in for so many years.
2: You know, my background is as a, a surgeon and trauma surgeon and critical care specialist. You know, when one thinks of conflict our minds automatically go to the worst type of conflict, and that's physical and mortal injuries. And so it's easy to get preoccupied with that. But the truth of the matter is, is in every conflict that we've ever engaged in, that the U.S. military has ever engaged in, the primary impact to readiness has always been disease, non-battle injury. Up to 85% of our our casualties, if you'd like to say, are disease, non-battle injuries. And infectious disease is a very large part of it. So while you may glorify us surgeons, and we have a very prominent role, we're actually only addressing a very small portion of the troops that, that form the, our readiness, our contingency response. That's one thought. So I think, you know, we're, we're kind of missing the bulk by making immunizations optional or an opt-in thing, then I think we probably need to spend a little bit more time then understanding how do we want to mitigate the risk of disease non-battle injuries as an impact to yep. readiness. So that's the first thought I have. The other piece is, is that in Viking Cruises, we we don't mandate. We could, as a private company, mandate immunizations and as a condition of employment. But what we found was, and, and this is what I find not only with the organization's private organizations. But what I found with the folks that I worked with in the military is understanding the purpose and the consequences of, of uh, having an immunization or not is part of the conversation that you need to have. And so being able to explicitly talk about that without this, these are the this is the probability of coming down with this. And while you may not have a problem surviving it, you also then become a vector to infect other people. Yeah. And so I think that if people are willing to control what, that it only affects them, you know, that would be great if that was an option. But if you look at the way our settings are within the military, we are by design a congregate element. And so proximity to each other means not only should we be keeping ourselves safe, we need to be keeping the others, our our shipmate, our battle buddy, you know, our wingman safe as well. And I think that's part of our individual and collective responsibility. And so I, I think that if those things have been accounted for and can be addressed with this change in immunizations, then that would be great. But if they're not being addressed, then we haven't finished our work on what, what this needs to look like.
1: Yes. Thank you. One last question, which we ask. Our guests is to share with us your thinking on what gives you the greatest optimism and hope. I'm looking forward. You know, we're in the fourth year of the pandemic. It's not over, but we're out of the acute phase, certainly. We're still at 250, 300, 350 deaths a day, sometimes as high as 500. We're 2,000 to 3,000 deaths a week. It's well over 100,000. So we're still in a serious situation. We're in a much better situation, obviously, than than we were not
2: a long while back. What gives you hope right now in this year four? I think what gives me great, the greatest hope is that, and I may have a, a biased view on it, I think the conversations that need to be had are still continuing. Yes. I think that's what gives me optimism. And I, you know, and I think that many of those conversations, many of them here at CSIS, are what we want to do in terms of preparing for the next. And I think that's the other piece. I, I'm not... I don't like to be one of those ones that is a doomsday yeah. person. I'm usually tremendously optimistic about things, but I also recognize that we've already had a couple of other infectious diseases break out, and, and it reminds me that we're not entirely protected from this. So as long as we keep the conversation going, then uh, whatever the next event is, you know, many of the involved and scientific thoughts are, you know, about um, there being another pandemic, then I, hopefully that we're in a better situation that we can deal with it in a, in a very measured and more global way with a lot more health and have it done across all the, all the sectors.
1: Thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you for so much that you've contributed to our work here at CSIS. We're thrilled to have you be part of the Alliance and that you made some time today to be with us here at CSIS. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks also to Marla Hiller, who's produced this episode for us. Marla, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.